time ago when I when uh, just sort of things started to change in Moose Jaw, uh, with more and more people coming from other countries, I said, I, I think that God is sending us reinforcements <laughs> in the work that God has called us to do. Well, this morning, I want to just... Uh, we're, we're in a series about the second coming of Jesus. Advent is a season where there's three comings that we celebrate. The first is Jesus' first advent, or his first coming, which is what Advent means, um, as a baby. And then there's a, a, the second coming that the Bible talks about, where Jesus will come again. And then the third coming is really the coming in, in our own hearts. And uh, we've been talking that, about that um, in these, um, these messages. Uh, last week I talked about how if you, if you have a favorite movie and you find out that favorite movie has a sequel coming and you have a pretty strong sense it's going to be even better than the original, you get pretty excited. And uh, that's how it is for Christians and the second coming, is that we know about Christ's first coming, and as Christians we've experienced the results of that first coming, and so we are excited about the second coming. But I think in some ways our longing for the second coming sometimes gets a little bit um, muted or, or diminished because sometimes when we're thinking about the second coming, we're mainly thinking, we can get thinking about uh, troubles and trials and different things that may come around the same time as the second coming in, in, in connection to it. And uh, I've tried myself in this series to try to, um, I'm trying not to get us off the track where it's, it's about those things, though we will talk about some of those things. In fact, next Sunday I hope to talk about it a little bit more because it's, sometimes we can get distracted by the connected events and forget what the main event is. And the main event is the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main event when it comes to the second coming. Let me read to you from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Again, this is Isaiah. He's speaking five to 700 years before Jesus uh, comes the first time as a baby. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim, listen to this part, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, so five, five to seven hundred years later, that, I say five to seven hundred because there's some debate over when it, uh, Isaiah's, this part was written. Anyhow, but anyhow, hundreds of years later, Jesus, Luke 4, I'm going to read from Luke 4, 16. It says, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Does it sound familiar? He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So here's my question. 
Why didn't Jesus read the part about the day of God's vengeance? Why did Jesus stop one line short? Well, let me help. On our street, Bluebell Crescent, where we live, there's a giant blue shrinking house. I think, I think Doug Siglico was the first one who pointed out to us. The giant blue shrinking house. So when you, when you come down Blue Sage and you don't turn at the first chance to go into Bluebell, but you go into the second, and you start coming down that street, you see at the very end of the street, because it's actually quite a long, long street, at the very end of, of the street you see a blue house. And the blue house is quite large. In fact, larger than any house in the neighborhood. And as you drive towards the blue house, it starts to shrink. You see the roof line start to just go as you go. Now, do you believe me? (laughs) Now I'm saying this is true. This is true. This is what you see. This is what you experience when you go down there. And if you go all the way to the house, you find out it's, about the, it's, it's still a big house, but it's a good size, but it's the same size as the houses around it. It's not way bigger as it looked when you first went. There's a reason for this. And the reason is this. is when you're far away at the end of the street, you not only see the blue house, but you see another building that is a couple blocks away from that house. And it appears to you as one house. And as you go down the street, that building in the distance slowly recedes and you can't see it anymore. And all you're left with is the original house. So if you actually walk behind the house, you'd find there's a huge park there. There's no other building right there. It's way off in the distance. You have the same experience in the mountains. You go into the Rocky Mountains and you see... Look at that mountain with its different peaks. That's very cool. I can hardly wait to get there. And as you get there, maybe the road is winding towards Banff or wherever you're going. And you suddenly realize along the way that, wait a second, that's two mountains. And then when you get to the first mountain, you realize the other mountain is miles and miles away. This is how the prophets saw the future. It's called the prophetic perspective. So when Isaiah wrote about the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, he was like, looking, like me looking at the blue house or like you looking at the Rocky Mountains. He says, I can see this. The Holy Spirit's revealed this, that in the future there'll be, these, there'll be this. But Jesus is not four, five, seven hundred years away from the beginning of seeing the first part. Jesus is already, he's, he's already arrived at the first location. So that's why he's saying, I'm, I'm here to set the prisoner free. I'm here to help people who are in brokenness and bondage and all sorts of things and blindness. And that's why he's proclaiming. He's saying, that is fulfilled in your hearing today. In other words, Jesus' first coming was to bring freedom. In fact, we, we know there's, it's, it was to bring more than that. Remember the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. When Jesus came in the first time, he came to bring peace. 
can bring peace to the turmoil in our hearts. I think one of the best pictures of the difference between Jesus' first coming and second coming and, 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 the, and the priorities behind it is how Jesus came as king. See, there's, there's a part of Jesus' life near the end of his life, just not far from his crucifixion, where he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's heralded as a king. People shout, Hosanna. He says, the Lord saves. Bless, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they throw palm branches on the ground. That's how we celebrate Palm Sunday today. And, they, and, they're, and they're celebrating. And he's coming as a king on a donkey. Well, coming as a king on a donkey, well, kings rode donkeys. And it, sim, it symbolized to the people that he, they were coming in peace. That this was a time of peace. This is a time of reconciliation. I mean, riding a, a donkey was, was also sort of a symbol of humility. And so Jesus came in a humble way, in a peaceful way, because in, his intention in that coming was reconciliation. His intention in that coming was to bring people into relationship with him. See, there's a great gulf of relationship that was between holy God who had created us in his image and given us this world to manage and given us a life to live as his ambassadors in the world and sinful humanity who rejected God's plan, who rebelled against him. In fact, were treacherously, treacherous in their relationship with God. And so Jesus came to restore people to God. He came on a donkey. Well, in the book of Revelation, we see that he comes again riding, but not on a donkey this time. In Revelation, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He had this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when Jesus comes again as a king, he's not riding a donkey, he's riding a war horse. And he's coming to bring justice and judgment. Now, people love Jesus meek and mild, coming in humility. I don't know if everyone loves Jesus coming as judge. You know, it's, it is how the disciples introduced him, though. They often would, um, would, would like when they were coming, um, Paul in Athens, He's coming to Athens. By the way, I looked this up last night because I was, I was thinking about the interview today. Do you know that Paul was in Athens in about A.D. 51? That's, you know, what people are guessing is the age. Or maybe 52. Actually, I can't remember which one's which. And Thomas arrived in India basically that same year. 
So when Paul comes to Athens and speaking at, you know, to the people there, Thomas has already made it to India, and he's speaking there. That's pretty fascinating, pretty fascinating. Anyhow, when he gets to Athens, he, he, he talks about, he says, he says, God has appointed, God has appointed a man. Now remember, he's talking to people who have no context for Christianity, no context for, for Jesus. And so he's seen that they have an altar to an unknown God. He comes to, he uses that as his jumping off point. He says, I see you have an altar to an unknown God. He says, well, I want to tell you who God is. And God created mankind so that they would respond to him and goes through a little bit. And then he gets to this point. He says, and God has appointed a man to to judge the living and the dead. And the confirmation that he's appointed this man is that he's been raised from the dead. So he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, that becomes the talking point where uh, apostles are going into, like Peter or Paul, they're going into scenarios and they're saying, I want to tell you about Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. So Jesus comes the first time in peace for reconciliation, but he comes in the, in the second time for justice and judgment. I found it interesting when I read verse 14 in Revelation 19, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Uh, one of my most, my favorite probably movie series or in, in, is The Lord of the Rings. I read the books. Oh, I got an amen. Look at that. All this scripture, no amens, and I say The Lord of the Rings and I get one. <laughs> I love the scene. So it's in the third movie. In the third movie, evil is basically looks like it's triumphing. In fact, they're they're at the uh, the gates of Minas Tirith and they're attacking. And it is a huge evil army, and it just looks dark and bleak, and and they're being overrun. And then the riders of Rohan show up. And they're a little bit on elevated uh, view, but you just see them across. And, uh, you know, they bravely charge down the hill at this huge horde of, of uh, evil characters. And uh, they crash into there. I mean, I, when I watched that the first time, my insides went soaring. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. It's so great. It's amazing. You know what that movie's called, the third one? The Return of the King. So here's a Catholic, Christian, J.R.R. Tolkien, and not like his buddy C.S. Lewis who wrote things sort of very pointed about Jesus. In fact, Tolkien used to criticize C.S. Lewis. That he was too pointed. When, he, when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he's like, well, you're just being so plain about it. You just, like, clearly the line is Jesus. Well, Tolkien also wrote with a Christian worldview in mind. You can't read The Return of the King as the title of his book without knowing, knowing, knowing that Tolkien is referencing the second coming. You can't miss it. And so here's this. The most evil is winning. And then here comes The Return of the King. Here comes Aragorn. Here comes the the riders of Rohan. So we might be a little bit, when we hear that Jesus is going to be a judge, we might be a little bit, we might not like it. 
It might be harder for us to sort of get our heads around that or, or to embrace it. But I think it's, there, there's an element in it that is, is something we can love. Remember, I'm trying to share stuff with you that will help you love his appearing. Last week I talked about that. Like, do you love the second coming of Jesus? Right? And that, a lot of that will be hinged on, do you love the first coming of Jesus? Now, the second coming is different. But actually, the second coming is the climax of the story. I mean, the first coming with the cross and, and his sacrificial death, that's very significant. It's might call it the TSN turning point of the story. The climax of the story is the second coming. It's the sequel. And uh, it's, it's going to be even better. But when we think about judgment, we think, well, okay, he's coming in judgment. In some ways, we crave judgment. We crave justice. Every time you experience injustice in your life, we, we want someone to make that right. Experiencing injustice. We cry out for justice, just like. So here's the good news. We do not live in a universe where evil will go unpunished. God will bring justice. And he'll bring it in a couple ways he brings justice. One is through the cross. And the other way is through the judgment that comes at the second coming. But there will be justice. So if you see somebody in the world and they're getting away with evil again and again and again and again, and they, maybe for a whole lifetime, I often wonder about that. What do you do? I, so I've grown up with a Christian worldview, so I, I haven't, you know, lived without that. But I often wonder, what do you do with the fact that evil men seem to succeed at evil for a whole lifetime of evil, and sometimes are never punished. What do you do with that? The followers of Jesus were taught in response to that dynamic to trust God. To trust that Jesus was a good judge to trust that he would judge justly. Romans 12 and 18 says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That's not to hurt him. That's, that's, that phrase is to turn him. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus being a judge, you, think, you might think, well, if Jesus is a judge, well, then his followers will be really judgmental. <laughs> but in a way... The opposite happens. Because Jesus has got judgment covered. And because we're called to trust him with that, 
we can, actually, we are obligated to, in this life, treat people kindly, even our enemies. In fact, it becomes, in the Christian life, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of an, if you, if you notice in your heart a love, a growing love for your friends and a growing love for your foes, that should encourage you and give you some confidence that God is at work in your life. If you're able to forgive bigger and bigger hurts and bigger and bigger injustices, if you're able to give up revenge and payback, that's a sign that God is at work in your heart. And that's actually the, that's the, the Apostle Paul. He prayed. It's funny, he always prayed this. So many times he prayed it in, in connection to the second coming. He'd say, I pray that your love would abound more and more. And then he would, he would talk about God's keeping power in our lives. God's work of sanctification, which is meaning changing us more and more in our character to be like Jesus. Remember Jesus who could forgive, who forgave people in real time. Like he was forgiving the people, crucifying him as they were crucifying him. I mean, in our lives we get hurt and sometimes it takes us a long time to forgive. It might even take us a long time to get around to the decision to forgive. Jesus was forgiving people while they were crucifying him. I mean, that's the gold standard of forgiveness. Giving up revenge. And as far as it depends on you, living at peace with everyone. That's the way we leave room for God's wrath. We trust Jesus that he's going to be a good judge and that the way that he judges is going to be right. And that no one will have a cause on that day to point a finger at God and say, you did unjustly. So that's one good thing about Jesus coming as a judge. Now we get a little nervous about Jesus coming as a judge because if he's going to make all the wrong, if he's going to deal with all the injustice and all the wrong things so that there's justice, then we've got to look at the wrong things in our own lives. And that could make us pretty nervous. Listen to these verses. Some of them will be very familiar to many of you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Then Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. So the bad news about his judgment is that his judgment applies to everyone, including us. And all of us have sinned, and what sin earns is sin against the holy God earns is death. And separation from God. But then there's the good news. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the world that it rebelled against him. You and me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the story of the first advent. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God saw us in our sin. And in this era between the first coming and the second coming, he offers grace. 
He offers forgiveness. He offers eternal life as a gift. Not that you can earn it, but that you can receive it from him. See, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans uh, 3.23 goes on to verse 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. If you're going to come to God, if you're going to be right, if you're going to, if you're going to be on the, if you're going to, this is the amazing thing. If you're going to stand before God at the, at the day of the second coming, and not be in terror over a holy God and our sinfulness, it's going to be because of grace. If, you're, if you belong to Christ, if you have come to put your trust in him, he's your Lord and he's your Savior, you will experience the second coming as grace. In fact, one of the intentions or, or things that God wants to do on that day is to present you blameless. Now you say, well, but we've all sinned. Absolutely. Here's the, an interesting thing that just hit me this week when I, I was studying this, is that it's my job to confess my sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my job is to confess my sin. My job is to agree with God. If he says something is sin, I'm going to align with him and I'm going to agree with him and I'm going to say, yes, you're right. And then his desire is to proclaim us blameless. So if I humbly recognize my need for a Savior, as I recognize my sin has separated me from a holy God and, and that I cannot, make, I cannot atone for my sin by my own good works. If I recognize that, and if I come before him and confess my sin, I need you. I need what you did on the cross, Jesus. I need that applied to my life. I trust in what you did on the cross. I see that it was necessary because I am a sinner who needs a Savior, but I see that it was enough because your blood shed on the cross can wipe away any sin every sin that I've ever sinned. If I confess with my mouth that I need him, I'm a sinner that needs a Savior, then he has a statement to say over my life, and that is blameless. Now it can go the other way. First John talks about this. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. So either, I, either I'm acknowledging my sinfulness before God and my need for his forgiveness now, and then God on, the, on that day, in the second coming, when he comes, will present me blameless. Or I'm going to stubbornly say, I'm not a sinner. I don't need what Jesus is offering. I don't need what he did on the cross for me. I don't need his forgiveness or his leadership in my life. And then on that day, he'll pronounce me guilty. So what do we want? Are we ready to embrace Jesus who comes on a donkey? 
that opportunity is available to us. Are we ready to embrace the one who comes to reconcile, who comes to bring peace between God and man? Or would we rather have Jesus come on the war horse and for us not to be riding along with him, but to be riding against him? I like talking about all the the nice things. But I think it's important that we we recognize the the cost of of human sin. We recognize the consequences of human sin. We recognize what it's done to us, but we recognize what it had to do to Christ. Right? It was our sin that nailed him on the cross. But he went there out of love for you and I so that we could be reconciled to him. And when he comes again, if you, if you put your trust in him, if you're trusting in what he's done for you, if you've thrown your life onto him, said, I'm yours, I belong to you, we will experience the second coming, not with terror, but as grace, as a wonderful union with him, as the beginning of really living. I mean... He's got so much good in store for us. But he's asking us to come humbly, to repent of our sin, and to trust him fully. Would you stand with me? This morning, I just, I just if you have not... If you're coming to that point or just God's moving in your heart right now and you, and you sense, I need to embrace Jesus for who he is and, and the way that he came. I need to embrace that he came to bring reconciliation in my life. If you're, just, you're at that point, you want to you make that official. I mean, it's funny because God may already have done that work in your heart. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you in a prayer so that you can just Give some words, and these words are just to help you verbalize what God is already doing in your heart. But I'm going to ask you all to say it after me. Just help us all to uh, be on the same page, and it's it's the kind of prayer that you could pray any single day. So would you repeat this after me? And for some of you, this is the first time. This is your commitment moment. This is your moment of saying, God, I want to be right with you. I want to be aligned with you. I want to follow you. You can be the Lord. I won't try to be the boss anymore. I'm exchanging my own agenda for your agenda. I want what your plans are for my life and my future. Let's pray. Repeat after me. Dear Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, please, 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 please tell someone. If you came with someone who you know is already a follower of Jesus, tell them. If you don't know anyone here, find me in the foyer. Tell me. 
But God has got good things in store for you. He's got incredible things in store for you. He's going he's gonna to want to take you on a journey where you become more and more like him all the time. And the things that you see in Jesus that are attractive and, and awesome, he's going to start working those qualities out in your life as well. He's got incredible things in store for your life. Let's worship him. Shine.